Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and powerful. That through your word you make known to us both our need of salvation and also, and above all, the source of our salvation, your son Jesus Christ. So as we study your word tonight, we ask that the power of your Holy Spirit would be a work within us and amongst us. So we would be led to renewed knowledge of your truth and of your will, led to a life of repentance, and that above all that we would be strengthened in faith and that our, the faith that we have would uh, come to life in the way that we live our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are, as I said, Hebrews uh, in Hebrews chapter 4 now. We got to the end of chapter 3 last time, uh, two weeks ago. And uh, as you uh, can see and uh, hopefully can also recall, the argument that uh, began in chapter 3 runs into this this chapter. Um, I won't make my usual spiel about chapter divisions in the Bible. You know it all by heart by now. But... um, there is there is no break in the argument, and we can tell that because the opening word of chapter four is therefore, always a clue that we are not beginning something new. Uh, but what what does happen here is there's a kind of gear shift in the argument. Uh, in that, having laid out in chapter three the foundation of uh, or the the the, the the basis of his argument, he now really applies it here. So before we read chapter four, it's, uh, let's, let's remind ourselves of uh, what we have uh, read so far or what the argument uh, beginning in chapter three was. I mean, there, again, you know, in terms of the construction of the whole letter, you will see that there's a therefore in the beginning of chapter 2, there's a therefore in the beginning of chapter 3, there's another therefore in chapter 3, verse 7, there's a therefore in chapter uh, 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 14 begins with since, uh, chapter 5 begins with 4, uh, 6 begins with therefore. In other words, it's a sort of cascading argument. It's not that there's this chunk and this chunk. He's building one, the whole letter is just one big argument, uh, which has been very, very carefully constructed, uh, very skillfully constructed, where each part leads on from the previous part. But let's just take as, uh, just for for the benefit of uh, setting up, uh, so today's study, uh, the uh, second part of chapter 3 as as the kind of previous building block, beginning verse 7. Uh, is anybody here feeling really uh, brave uh, and and willing to, to give a quick summary of what the point of that second half or second part of chapter three is the kind of the key key argument anybody feeling feeling up to the task don't wander off from the faith into unbelief okay so that's basically the the um the the one sentence summary of what is being said and how is that what's what how is it, uh, that argument constructed or what's what's at the sort of core of that argument? It's, it's like so in one Corinthians ten, so we got the example of the ancient Israel in 
So between Egypt and the Promised Land. But take uh, not from Exodus, but from... Psalm 95. Psalm 95. So we have Psalm 95 is our text. Uh, for this part, so it's, this is this, it's the sermon text for this part of the sermon. Um, uh, you know, th- throughout the letter, the the almost the whole a whole letter draws on psalm texts, which is an interesting thing. Where we in our in our services, it's very very rare to have a sermon on a psalm. I think if I if I recall correctly, I have once in my entire ministry preached on a psalm. Is that just uh, Well, it, we have a psalm for every Sunday, but it's just, uh, you know, it's not common, uh, and not just amongst Lutherans. It's, I, I've, I, I don't, I haven't come across many sermons in my life preached on a psalm. They're quite rare. And, uh, but, but it's interesting to me, at least, that the, this whole letter Really, it's a series of psalms and a sermon on a series of psalms, and at the, and and this is one of the core ones, Psalm ninety-five, and the second, well, the last part of Psalm ninety-five, which is the 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 warning against uh, against not a warning to heed the the warning example of those who did not enter the promised rest. So that's where the argument has, has started, and now it is in here in chapter four. It is being applied uh, uh, in or kind of on on um, applied further um, <clears throat> beyond the mere don't fall on the way and and there's it's a mixture of warning and encouragement. Uh, the the Hebrew word, sorry, the Greek word that is translated as exhortation, admonition, uh, and encouragement is, is all the one word. They all mean the same thing. Um, it even means to comfort. Uh, and what what this uh, what the writer here, whoever he is, is doing is doing that. He's writing in such a way as both to admonish and exhort and to encourage and to comfort. And just as we're about to read it, um, I would like you particularly to notice the fact that this argument is, uh, the the carrot in this argument is more significant than the stick, even though both um, are being used, both the encouragement and the warning, but ultimately he's holding up a prize more than he is threatening um, about the consequences of disobedience. So, uh, if I could read, um, could somebody read one to five, and then we'll have a change uh, change of readers uh, from six to thirteen. I could read one one to five. Thank you. <coughs> Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us. Fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to all of us, to, to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. But um, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do not, um, we, for we who have believed 
to enter that rest, as he as he has said. Though I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the work were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had for he has spoken of in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Just one more, please. Oh, and one more. Oh, yeah. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Thank you. Would you like something to pick up from there? Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Is it all the way to 13? I can't remember. Yes, please. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, thank you. Now, this is this is an incredibly uh, densely packed passage. We could spend hours on this if we really wanted to. Um, and I will endeavor really hard not to, even though I do actually want to. I'll uh, see if we can get through all of this in, in, in the time allotted tonight. Uh, before I say anything more, is, is anyone, has anyone kind of have any observations or questions about this passage? Ray? Well, I just wonder about the connection between verses three and four. Uh, is it sort of a clumsy translation or how is the origin? Because it talks about, uh, we believe, uh, we enter the rest and then it says, as he has said, they shall not enter my rest. So it's a big, it's sort of a contradiction, isn't there? So I don't know how how is it in the original language to me because it sounds that you know it's not um, it's not a, um, it's completely opposite what they said in verse three. I know that it refers in that they shall not enter my rest for those to those who do not believe, but nevertheless, this is um, how it's structured is a bit odd in my opinion. <laughs> Well, you'd better write a better letter yourself <laughs> if you don't like it. Uh, I wish I had the skill. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, the way um, it is, I mean, it's, it's written in this incredibly dense manner, um, which means that you have to kind of prize it apart a little bit. Um, the, I think, it's not so much it's, it's a translation issue, Um but rather, there's, it's kind of it's. Uh, there's quite a lot that is implied. So in that argument from three to four, it's actually the kind of as he has said. Really, the as covers 
the rest of that verse all the way to the end of verse 5. And then it's verse 6 that sort of uh, is the resolution. So if you look at it, so we who have believed enter that rest. Um, as he has said, or you could translate it as one has said, but it's more likely because he has said, so that's why in my rotation and rest for some way, blah, 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 blah. Since therefore it remains for some to enter those who formerly received the good news because failed to enter because it begins. Again, he points a certain day to day, and then we're back to us. So it's, it's a sort of, it, it brackets, it, it's like sort of an argument within an argument. So that, you know, grammatically, if you look at that verse three, it looks like as, that as he has said, just refers to that one sentence there. But actually the, the next several sentences unpack how that is before it then resolves what, where the sentence begins. And it's, it's just a very, it's a sort of, I mean, grammatically, the way that Greek works grammatically, it likes to, uh, if you, if you're part of me sort of going on about grammar, but it, it nests clauses. So what you happen is you begin a clause and then uh, you know, you start saying something and then you have the a subordinate clause in the middle of it. They, you know, Greek like sandwich constructions. So, you know, uh, instead of having the general who has slaves, um, uh, you, you are more likely to say the having slaves general. You know, that it likes, there's it's a sandwich construction where you begin. And so it, it works both within the kind of the grammar of a sentence, but also from the grammar, you know, the thought of, you know, the longer passage of thought. And this is a typical kind of sandwich, kind of sandwich shape construction where you begin in verse three and you continue really, you, you can conclude after verse, from verse six and seven onwards. And you've got the kind of the, 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 um, subordinate materials in the middle rather than, Rather than, because English sentences and a kind of Western, Northwestern European thought like proceeds kind of quite linearly, you just go from one point to the next. Something and something, but not something else. Therefore, and then the next thing, and we kind of go one, boom, boom, boom. Whereas, and, and if you know, if you know any German, German, German writers sometimes like to do this as well, you know, especially academic German writing, you know, this sort of, where you have to kind of get to the end of the paragraph to get the point of the whole paragraph, which can be really infuriating if you're not used to that kind of thinking. But that, I think that's the short, I, I don't know how sure that was, but that's the short answer to that question. Is that you kind of have to read a bit, a little bit more at a time, really, to get the broad sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, Adrian. How do you strive to enter rest? Good that's question. You, you have a you have a good explanation lined up for. Uh, yeah, we'll uh, let we'll we'll get to that. That's a good question. Sorry. If I don't answer it, remind me. But I think I will. Yes, it, it could sound like a contradiction in terms. You know, try really hard to rest. Just relax. You know, it doesn't doesn't. It's so contradictory. Any any anything else? If not, let's let's go right to the beginning then. Therefore, and therefore, as we already said, follows from verse three, where there's this warning about those who shan't enter God's rest. Those who, those who did not enter God's rest, but fell in the wilderness because of unbelief and disobedience. Now this says, and, 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 and we, so the, we continue with the comparison with Exodus, the Exodus, and particularly with the way that it is portrayed in the end of, at the, in the closing verse of Psalm 95. 
Therefore, that is say that if that being the case, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, what's the implied warning in putting it that way? It'll stop standing at some point. Yes, that there isn't endless time. There is in in uh, uh, sort of Nordic. Nordic to Lutheran, uh, spirituality, there's, um, there's this concept that is quite common, at least used to be common, uh, when I still lived there. This idea was called the time of visitation. That there's a certain time of visitation when God offers his word to people. Or time of seeking, if you like. And how that, you know, when, uh, when Jesus, uh, he weeps over Jerusalem and say, you did not heed your time of visitation. You know, that God came and he was present and he presented himself and he offered and he sought you out. I said, but that, that time of visitation is not guaranteed to be endless. And it could be that God withdraws. You know, that God, God offers, offers his grace to for a time. And if he's rejected, he withdraws the offer. Um, that's kind of the implicit thought behind that. That while the promise of entering that his rest still stands. Now, how long is that for? These people, the Hebrews to whom this is written. Does it mean that there's many years for them to wait? Well, it doesn't mention years. It's just today. 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 Yes. And we'll get to the word today later on, but it is today. We have today. We have no promise of tomorrow. And that's true on, on every level. It's true of our actual very, very lives. We are alive today. We don't know that we will be alive tomorrow. There is now. And the offer in the very writing of this letter, the offer is being held out again. The promise is being Issued again. Every proclamation, every time you hear the gospel, it is a, is a promise being held out to you. But you do not know that that promise will be renewed. This today might be the last time. So there is no, uh, there is no, uh, no putting, putting off for another day that which is urgent today. So there is a sense of urgency uh, um, about the about the call, while at the same time saying, "But the offer still stands. It's not that it's been taken away or that it's But you have it today, and you only know about it today. You don't. That's all you know. You cannot know about any future. So, to, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. And in fact, in the in again in the in the Greek original, the word fear. Let us fear is the first word of the sentence. And again, in the way that that the language works, the word that comes at the top of a sentence is usually the one that is being emphasised. So actually, the sentence is, "Let us fear then, while the promise of entering the rest still stands, lest." Any of you should have, uh, um, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's how he actually argues. Now, now that word fear, uh, NIV, the NIV translates as a let us be careful. 
which sounds a lot more, uh, well, less, less frightening, literally. <laughs> Let us be careful. Now, that word fear is a broad, it's a much broader word than the English word fear. So if you said to be fearful is to be frightened, you know, to be filled with, you know, it's, it's a negative thing. And that word fear, or the Greek word for fear can also, it can mean various things. It can mean caution. It can also mean a kind of uh, reverence and respect. Um, even so much so that it can be used of the relationship between husbands and wives as, as being one of fear, which is usually translated as as respect. You know, nobody nobody says. I don't. I don't think we should think that Paul is saying to wives that they should be afraid of their husbands, for example. But so the idea there's a. It nevertheless, it's more than just you know take being prudent. It's a more powerful. You know, so let's be careful. But the idea is that you are conscious of the. Uh, you're you're aware and conscious of what will happen if you are not mindful. That's that's the idea of this fear here. So let us fear. I let's let let's let's be fully aware of what the consequences will be if we don't reach the rest. There's rest. What's the alternative to the rest? Reaching the rest. What's the alternative if you don't reach it? If you don't, if you don't rest. It's dead. You're dead. Not in this Correct. world. Rest or death. Those are the two options. There's not rest and busyness. Rest or death. Is there like a parallel here with Peter's warning about, you know, the devil is a roaring lion looking for some to devour? Is that? Absolutely. It's ex- exactly the same concern. And it was also the concern that Jesus expresses in his parables about, you know, the master of the house coming back in the dead of the night. You know, when, uh, at a now when you do not expect. Not to be caught on the hop. You know, it's, 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 it's very much so. And it's, I think it's very important for us to note just how much the New Testament writers continue to emphasize this danger. You know, there's a real, real, uh, real uh, danger about, uh, that they are conscious of, of people who do not make it, who, who fall on the way. And it's a really, it's, it's a, it's a common theme. It's a frequently expressed theme and it is usually expressed in these very strong terms. Being devoured by a lion. You know, that's, a, that's, that's not a nice way to go. Um, you know, the kind of the, the, the being hacked to pieces that Jesus speaks of, you know, the unfaithful servant being hacked to pieces. And here we have this die on the way, you know, don't make it. You just die on the way. You know, you think of like a so classic Wild West kind of movie where, you know, somebody in the cowboys, you know, riding through the desert and, and there you see, you know, just see a skeleton in the background, someone who didn't make it to the next next source of water. It's that kind of idea. You know, you go and there are there are bodies, bodies left behind. Think of like the, the people in in you know in number seventeen, for example, you know, who are bitten by those venomous snakes. Or the people who were struck by the plague. Or those people who were swallowed up by the earth because they, they, they rebelled against Moses. These are, these are, these are powerful. These are, these are really quite dramatic fates. Promised land or death. And it says, you know, 
um so lest any of you and it, it, it's it's this i mean this is <laughs> this is um this letter is very difficult to translate um so there are lots of different kind of ways of expressing this but it, it, the ESV says lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it um uh new king james any of you seem to have come short of it um niv says that none of you be found to have fallen short which the idea is that you know you you don't make it all the way to the end you know that you look at oh you you know look for this person and they're not there you find okay they didn't make it let us be fearful that of being found in the company of those who who are you know when when the when when the people are counted in at the other end not to be amongst the missing missing in action for and he goes on um it says good news came to us again is he uses a verb there which is the we is it kind of if i if i over translate for we were good newsed gospeled evangelized just as they were and evangelized doesn't mean it means that to to have the gospel proclaimed to you that's that's what evangelism is in 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 the in the new testament it's not quite what it's come to mean in in modern english just you know we we receive the good news just as they did who's they as the children of israel in the desert yes so they are also so they received the good news as did we we received the good news as they did. So, so these are, this, this, by the way, cuts, I mean, it's, it's not an argument about it. It's just, he's just assuming, like the rest of the Bible does, that the, um, the people of Israel heard the gospel. They were saved by the gospel, by the good news, by the promise. Because they were, they were heading for the promised rest. And as the Book of Concord puts it very simply, the gospel, the word, term gospel refers to the promises as opposed to the commandments, which is the law. So the Israel wasn't saved by the law, and now, you know, the old covenant was all about being saved by the law, and now the new covenant is being saved by the gospel. No, salvation has always been by the gospel. Because nobody's kept the law. And if he was salvation by the law, then nobody would have been saved until after Pentecost, which is not the case. So they received, and the good news came to us, as it did to them, but the message or the word, literally the word, rather than that's the word, uh, logos, they heard did not benefit them because they were not, and again, this is really, really hard to translate, uh, they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, this could mean that they were not, uh, the, the word united can mean kind of be being united or be mixed with, blended with, and it can either mean uh, by faith with those who listened, or it could also mean by hearing. <laughs> so there's, you know, there are lots of different options that it could mean. But let's go with the way that it's been translated here in in the Bible that we have in front of us. So what he's saying is that they heard, we heard, 
but hearing the gospel did not benefit them, why not? Because they weren't listening properly. That's not what it, it, it's, what does it proper, proper listening mean here? Because they didn't have faith. They didn't listen by faith. Mm-hmm. So they heard, but they were not, they were not bonded, made one with those who listened. There was no, even though they were in the same company, they were in the same crowd. They were a separate crowd because they did not, they, they did not have faith in the promise. And because they didn't have faith in the promise, they grumbled and complained at Massa and Meribah and they fell in the wilderness. This links directly to, uh, to un- the understanding of what the church is. And the Oxford Confession puts it very clearly that in, in the article eight of Oxford Confession speaks of the church, that in the church, the visible company for the visible assembly of the church, you have the godly and the ungodly mixed together. And you go to church, and they all look the same. But there are, there is in the church, it doesn't mean that every single congregation has some hypocrites, but hypocrites and true believers are mixed in together, and you cannot tell simply by looking at people's faces which is which. And in fact, it's not for us to know that. But what it is for us to know is to ensure that we are not one of the hypocrites. We're not one of the ones who pretend to be Christians but are not. Ones that stand there and say the words and hear the words but do not believe. And that's, you know, that's a sort of a very, a, a very fundamental understanding of the church. I remember years ago, uh, hearing a talk about, uh, what a, a church growing might look like. We think of a church growing means the numbers go up. And the speaker gave the examples of what, imagine that you have a church where you have a hundred people of whom 70 are Christians and 30 are hypocrites who turn up but aren't, don't, don't actually believe. Then a new pastor comes along and he begins to preach really powerfully calling repent, people to repentance and faith. And the 70 are encouraging the faith. Of the 30, 20 get really cross and leave, and the other 10 are converted. So now you have 80 people and no hypocrites. Did the church just grow or did it shrink? You know, I think it's, uh, it's, you know, these, these, so obviously these things are invisible and they're visible to God alone. But to, to remember that we are not to judge by the eye. The church lives by faith. And since faith is invisible to the human eye and is undetectable by the human senses, only God knows where true faith to be, faith is to be found. We are to strive for the true faith and for fellowship in the faith, being mingled with, being united with, being, uh, being made one with those who have faith and be, and, and not be concerned with just raw numbers. I mean, uh, it depends on how you count is, but you know, the, the number of Israelites that left Egypt was very, very large. It was so large that a lot of people have said that there must be some mistake in the text. There can't be that many of them. And all and exactly two got to the other end. So 
you know, that that's the constant warning for us. Faith, you know, hearing the gospel is 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 necessary but not sufficient. You must also believe it and live by faith. For we who have believed notice it says have believed. Why does he say have believed? It's saying what you're saying. It's saying the ones that are with faith that believed. And it's saying to all the people with the ones that also don't believe. Have I got yes. that muddled? Yes, no, no, you're right. But why is it say we have, you know, why is it speaking, speaking the past tense? You know, we have believed. Is there some question whether they're going to continue to believe? Uh, it might be. Actually, I think it's, it's actually, there's an encouragement in this. Um, the, uh, because the sense of it is, you could, you could trans, equally well translate as who have come, who have, who have come to believe, who have begun to believe. So the idea is, you know, the faith is already, we have already received faith. We, remember that again, in the New Testament, the word to believe is identical to the word. It's, it's, or the, the word when it said believe, always the same word also means to have faith or to trust. It's exactly the same word. So there isn't a word for belief, another one for faith. That's just a peculiarity of English. And in fact, trust, faith, and belief are exactly the same word. And a believing into the word, the adjective believing also means trusting and also means trustworthy and faithful. So it's got that one word has both, both sides of the coin, if you like, all in one. Um, and grammatically speaking, at this point, uh, the, the, the tense that is used means something that has already been accomplished, a completed action. So it's not a, it's not a, an ongoing thing that we have begun to believe, but we have come to believe. We have started, you know, we, we have received faith. We have become the faith filled ones or faith believing ones. So it's, in other words, it's a reference ultimately to, and again, again, we can, fairly safely assume that these people are uh on the whole uh fairly recent um converts i.e. they that they have come to faith as adults they have been baptized within their own memory not 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 in infancy like you know like their children or the next for future generations might be but these are people these are the first generation of christians and so this is we who have believed really links back to whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The salvation has already been given. Faith has already arrived. So he's not asking, he's not trying to exhort these people to begin to believe, but in order, but rather to continue to believe. We who have believed enter that rest. And this is where now we get to that construction that Rea you asked about at the beginning. As he has said, Or really, it's you know, it's, it's more emphatic. It says, "Just as he has said," and then he quotes again Psalm ninety-five, the last verse: "As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Although, 
his works were finished from the foundation of the world. I have to confess that when I was preparing this, I, I stopped at that verse and, and I scratched my head a little and then had to do quite a, quite a bit of hard work to try and tease out the argument. So what exactly does that mean? So why does he say, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, before I, uh, before I reveal to you what my head scratchings led to, does anybody like to, uh, suggest what they understand by this? I don't know if this is what they would have understood by this, but is this a kind of intermingling of time under, uh, in time and how eternity time runs, as it were. I don't know. You have to explain to me what you mean by that. <laughs> so, <laughs> God is outside time. So for him, they had already not entered the rest. And we have entered the rest. But for us, it happens consecutively and we think we see things linearly okay i understand i understand what you're saying and i think you could make that argument i don't think this text makes that argument right now but i think there's i think there's certainly a sense in which in god you know in it from god's perspective things are both begun and completed you know he can see the beginning and the end of time but we are not, you know, we kind of travel in our, in our perspective of time and we, and it's, you know, we have to wait for its, its completion. And I think that's a, that's a really important truth. I would argue that in this particular text, he makes the very opposite point, actually. But Rosemary, you go first. Would it mean that God knows what's going to happen at the end? And it's a warning, a warning that uh, everybody will have to have faith before they get to their rest. Uh, it could be, I don't think in the, in the case it could be, again, I said in the same way, I think you could make, you could easily, it would be a valid argument and point to make. I'm not, I don't think it's being, I don't think that point is being made here. Right. But thank you, thank you, uh, thank you for the thought because I think it's an important one to know, to, to keep in mind. Rather what he seems to be saying is, you know, we think of, and, and it's the whole, if you look at the whole argument that runs through, if you're reading Psalm 95, what is the rest which they fail to enter? Seemingly. What end fa- rest did they fail uh, to enter? The promised land. Um, yeah. Promised land. But if mm. you re- if you look at it, he specifically says that that's not what we're talking about. It's not the promised land. There's a it's different a new kind Jerusalem, of isn't it? It's nope. what happens after. No, he's not talking about that either. Because what he's saying that God already, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. That rest already exists. It's not something to look forward to. And that's the thing heaven? I think, gone. The kingdom of heaven. Well, let's, let's, let's God. unpick it. Let's unpick it because it's, it's the way that it works. Now, he now says, he now, and this is why the, this is why the grammar is so, is, is tricky because he now, goes into another sub, uh, sub, uh, subordinate clause where he explains what he means by that. 
And I just, I, again, like I just said a couple of weeks ago, I just love this, this scientifically precise Bible referencing here, chapter verse. He has somewhere spoken, like Genesis 2, everybody knows where. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Um, this is the conclusion of the story of creation in, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. It's not like somebody somewhere said, like, you know, was it Ezekiel 33 or was it, was it Jeremiah 52? No, it is like the story of creation concludes with, and God rested from all his works. On the seventh day, God rested from his works, and then God sanctified the seventh day as a day of rest. And it's absolutely foundational to the whole of the rest of Scripture that the world was created in six days and the seventh day was his day of rest. It's like this is the whole of the rest of the Bible is just unfolding that in, in some in many ways. And what the and and uh, we are in a particularly disadvantaged position in thinking about this because since the late nineteenth century Christians have spent so much energy battling for the truth of creation against its sort of scientifically minded um, uh, deniers that we have we spend a huge amount of time and I've, I've, I have more experience with this than I like to have uh, already even though I'm not even old yet that we start you know the first question is well six actual days or is it metaphor and if what kind of metaphor and you kind of get dragged into this sort of sinkhole of of questions about the text that have nothing to do with the text and have everything to do with our curiosity and our doubts and our skepticism and so on i would really strongly encourage and urge you to shove those questions to one side whenever you read genesis 1 and 2 because even though they are not completely material they were not that text was not given to us for that purpose because funnily enough god didn't say you know what in the late in the 19th century people will have developed a scientific method with which they will inquire into the beginnings of the universe so i'm going to give them some text that tells them exactly how it is so that when we get to the 1850s we got the answer that's just not it, and therefore those questions are idle and pointless, ultimately, except as a kind of really third or fourth order question once we've really got to the point. The point is that this, the foundation, the, the, gen, the creation account is the foundation of all of God's revelation to us. And it tells us just as much about the end of things as it does about the beginning of things. Or if you want it in, 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 uh, technical, uh, theological language is just as much about eschatology as it is about protology. Because the creation of the world, as it is described in Genesis, portrays the world essentially, in many ways, being set up as a sanctuary. Into which, and if you go to kind of an ancient sanctuary, like a temple, they're ornate things, and the party piece, the thing about around which the whole thing is built, is the image of the deity, the statue of 
whatever it is that you are, you've there to worship. And what is there in, what is that, what is in the, uh, in the heart of the sanctuary that is being built, constructed by God in Genesis? God created man in his own image. Mankind as the image in God's sanctuary, in God's kind of the, the place that God creates for his presence. So humanity is the, in, instead of an, you know, statue of an idol, God creates man to be in his own image. And then we enter into the holy place in chapter two, which is the garden in Eden. And the whole temple then, we come to ex, the end of Exodus and construction of the tabernacle. It's obviously and clearly modeled on Genesis one and two. So the whole temple is like a miniature of the world and particularly of Eden and the garden in Eden. So you've got the, you've got this zones of holy of holies, the holy place and the wider, and, and so on. And the, and in a sense, you could say the camp of Israel is like the world in the heart of which is the garden that is the sanct, uh, the tabernacle and the heart of it. You've got the, um, instead of the uh, tree of life, we now have the mercy seat. So the whole, this is what it's all about. And that's why at the end of the six days, the, the sanctuary is complete. And so God then ordains the holy day, the day of rest. And that, which is why the Sabbath then becomes, is the festival of Israel. When you go to Leviticus and you got towards the end of Leviticus, you got a chapter that is it chapter 26 or somewhere, somewhere along, along around there somewhere towards the end of Leviticus. Got a chapter which lists all the festivals that Israel is to observe. And the first festival to be observed is the weekly Sabbath. And that's the day of rest. And on that day in the wilderness, God provides manna so that they do not need to look after the, you know, on the day of Sabbath, the Israelites do not need to do anything to sustain themselves, which is like a return to the garden where God, you know, they were fed by God from the trees of the garden. So the worship is a, a return. The worship of Israel is a return to the, uh, if you like, the primordial innocence and of fellowship that comes through fellowship with God. And that's why the Sabbath is the day of rest. And it's not something, it's, it's a picture of what was there in the beginning. And it's a picture of what is yet to be received in the future. But it is also something that is to be enjoyed now. Rosemary, you had a question there, Ray. Uh, a day wasn't a day like we've got. That's exactly the sort of question I don't want to discuss. Because so it, it can't matter. be, it can't be found out then, can it? it can no, that, never be that's known. not my point, Rosemary. My point is that we, that's, that question takes us away from the point of the text. I mean, the text is not, given to us so that we can answer the question or think about that question. The whole point is that that's telling that that whole chapter tells us about something completely different. And we are curious about it because it's a kind of, you know, that's intriguing to us, but that's intriguing to us in a, in a sort of way. Like it's a bit like if you go to a concert to listen to a symphony and then you say, you know, uh, or, you know, by some modern composer. And then you go up to them afterwards and say, you know, what, you know, what did you have, have for lunch while we were composing this? 
like you know that's not really the that's not really the question or you know how much ink did you did you end up spending you know expending on the paper so you know that might you might be curious about that question but that's not what we're there for right um it's not a question but to comment of the of what it has said uh brought to mind what said in Ezekiel about the Sabbath that it's a sign between oh, how does it mean between God and people so that we might know that he's the Lord and that he sanctifies us. Yes. But it's yes. a fantastic so you know what it has said it has brought to mind that uh, it's an Ezekiel, I think it is. Yes. Yeah and it's and and you know it's like um um when um you know in, in the small catechism when we have the third commandment you know um luther actually retranslates it uh, loosely the third commandment because this is the sabbath was given to the jews and it's not a you know it's been you know in, in a sense the sabbath has been already fulfilled by christ but you know you should sanctify the day of worship and so we should fear and love God so that we don't despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. And in the large catechism, he goes on to explain it. All things are sanctified with the word of God and prayer. So the Sabbath is not sanctified us by us, you know, staying, you know, having a lying and, and, and lying in, a, a lying and, you know, sleep, lying on a sofa all day. And if you're going to do that, you might as well go and do, you know, do something useful. If that's how you, by sanctified by God feeding us, nourishing us with his word and the gift of the spirit. Um, and yeah, which is kind of a development of the same, um, exactly the same, uh, say, same point that God gives it to us as a gift. Um, uh, give to us by which he sanctifies us and he, and he does that by caring for us. You know, the whole business of manna sufficing, sufficing for that day is that on that day, you're no longer you know, eking out an, a life from thorns and thistles, but the Lord himself will feed you. Six days you shall do your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord. It's the Lord's day. And that, and therefore that rest wasn't a future rest, it was a present rest. And when people went out on the first Sabbath when the manna fell to look for it, they showed that they were they did not live by faith in God's word, but they still lived by their own efforts. Or when they tried to keep manna for one day to last two days and it bred worms and stank. They weren't living by faith. They were not enjoying God's provision, God's rest. They were still living under the curse as opposed to in the freedom of the gospel. And all of this is sort of implicit behind the text. This is why I say this is a very dense text and we, and we could, we could dig deeper and deeper into this, but we shan't. We shall move forward. But this is kind of what's behind this whole thing that this was already the case at the beginning of the world. The rest has been in existence ever since then. It's not just a future thing. It's a present thing. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So the rest that already exists, not the rest yet to come. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news were evangelized, failed to enter because of disobedience. So there are those who received the promise but did not enter into the rest because of their disobedience. And since there are some who have not entered into that rest yet, again, 
We're finally getting kind of getting to the point now. He appoints or designates or sets, and it's a present tense. He's not that he will set or has done, but he sets, he presents it. In other words, it's, a, it's, it's appointed for us now, here, a certain day, a day. Um, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, that is after the wilderness wanderings, after the exodus. Today, he says through David, half a millennium after the exodus, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, which is not all that dissimilar uh, from what Paul writes um, in uh, to the Corinthians, we just find it. Um, to Corinthians, his rights of the of the day of salvation. In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's not in the future. It's now. That is to say, in the present moment, the past works of God and his promises and the future works of God and, and his promises converge here. We are recipients. We enjoy them here and now. Today is that certain day. It's not that there's a day, you know, 3rd of March, 379 BC. No, today, every day is that day that God appoints. When you hear the gospel, when you hear these words, God is as, as appointing that day as to be the day of salvation. For, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If the rest had been just entry into the promised land, there's no point. David's singing centuries later today if you hear his voice, because you're already in the promised land. No, there is a different kind of rest, which is not just the earthly promised land. And this, by the way, helps us really to understand what's going on when you've got books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which are addressed to those who are about to be taken to exile or are already in exile. And talking about God's future salvation when he's going to bring them back into the land. So is that, is that all there is? Is it just about that strip of land at the bottom of the Mediterranean that God is concerned about? And this, what this says is that actually that land for Israel become, is, is, uh, is an earthly embodiment of something that is far bigger than that, which goes all the way back to Genesis 2, the rest that God gives. And what Eden was to Adam and Eve, the promised land is to Israel, and as we find out, Christ is to the world. So then there remains, now, again present tense, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for... Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
So there are some who have already entered that rest. And who are they? Who are those who have already entered that rest and rest from their works as God rested from his? Those who have already died in Christ? I was hoping you'd say that because I like to say no. <laughs> you were just the lucky one to be the first one to say it. <laughs> you set little traps for us. Absolutely I do. This is as abusive as I get, I hope. Sheep bashing. <laughs> It's the electric fence I said to keep you fa- safe. Somebody has to walk into so the others and they're not to go there. So, if it's not those who have died, who is it then? The ones that have been baptised. Yes. Those who are lived by faith in Christ. And it, it's ultimate. You know, what is the place of rest for us now? Church. Yeah. Worship. Worship. In the liturgy, you know, when we come together, into the presence of Christ, we are enjoying that rest. Mm-hmm. And again, I could go off on a very long tangent. I'll keep it extremely short here. But this is one reason why the congregation is supposed to be mostly passive in worship rather than busily doing stuff. Because it's a place of rest, not a place of action. It's the like when you, what you get from the word of the Lord. It helps in your brain to work out that, that you are, uh, full of faith and understanding what's going on. Yeah, you, you, you come to be fed. Well, uh, something like that's what I meant in a way. Yeah, 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 no, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. So we come to church to be fed. And it's not, it's not like going to the gym. It's like going to the restaurant. And the busier you are, the less restful you are. It doesn't mean that you do nothing. Mm. You know, you do, what do you do in a restaurant? You don't just sit there and do nothing. You enjoy and then you, and then you pay. Those are the two things you do. In other words, you, you, you receive gifts, you receive things and then you return an appropriate, you know, give an appropriate return, which for the Christian is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And that's why there are full-time servants involved in in church, or as we like to say it in Latin, ministers. They minister, they serve, so that God's people may rest. And it's it's a great regret to me that this aspect of worship has been sort of neglected and forgotten in, in particularly in the last sort of forty or fifty years, and this idea that it's it the more the more lay people get to do in church the better. Because then otherwise all the, you know, only the ministers get to do stuff. And I think it's, it's, it's dangerously wrong-headed. Because it puts an emphasis on our works as opposed to on God's works. And so this is really the, the focus of it. We enter into God's rest. And this is, remember, this is written as a sermon. We'll see later in chapter 10 onwards, you know, how this is really focuses on what's happening now when you hear this as a sermon. In other words, in the middle, middle of the church's liturgy. But you enter into God's rest and you rest from your works as God did from his. Just like, you know, the Israelites on the day of Sabbath rested from the toil of collecting manna and collecting firewood and keeping this. There was already food. And even 
this day. I mean, if you want a good slow cook recipe, can I recommend any Jewish cookbook that you can get your hand on? Because to this day, devout Orthodox Jews, you know, they, what they do, they cook, they cook their Sabbath meal in such a way that it's all the work's done on Friday. You eat it on Saturday. And there are all kinds of clever, clever contraptions and, and recipes for how to have a hot meal, uh, without heating it, uh, on the Sabbath day, that kind of stuff. But it's all based on this idea that on the Sabbath day we rest. And this one is one reason why it's good for Christians too to observe a day of rest and not just work through the week and take two hours off for church. But the rest doesn't involve, is not primarily consist of idleness, but rather of refreshment, and first and foremost and primarily refreshment by God's word and spirit. So that's the, that's the goal. In other words, it's, we enjoy that rest by faith, obeying the promises. It's the obedience of faith, in obedience to the gospel. Believe what God says. Therefore, now we come, Adrian, to your question. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Or NIV says, make every effort to enter that rest. Uh, <clears throat> which is equivalent to what uh, Paul writes about in, writes in Philippians work out your own salvation with fear and trembling there is a work involved or striving or a or a being being kind of diligent if you like to enter that rest and what that does not mean is that there is you know God's done his bit now you do your bit you know he's he's got you to the third floor and now you've got to climb the rest of the way yourself But rather that it should be, uh, it should be our focus to enter that rest. Now, what does it mean in practice to strive in that way? Succeed in it. No, succeed is the end, is the respite, is the, is the end result. But what, what, what does it mean to strive for it or to be, to make every effort? How, do, what do we actually do in practice? What does it mean in practice? What does that mean day to day or in a, in, in, in practical terms? If the Israelites in the desert didn't enter the rest because they were disobedient, is it simply being obedient? And what does that mean? You work with like? the word of the law, you follow the word of the law and um make sure that everything you do is the right thing for Jesus and God. What does that mean? That you've done your best, you've strived to do it as best as you can. No. You keep, no? No. Because I'm afraid that way lies failure and disappointment. Taking yeah. on Christ's righteousness. Okay, now we're getting closer now. We're, 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 the bullseye is, is, is nigh. Uh, in that, the, you know, it's later on in the same letter, the, the author goes to say, you know, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. 
So to strive to enter that rest is to say, okay, so ask yourself, well, how does, how does one enter, enter that rest? Stay focused. Yeah, by faith. And so you know, you, let us now therefore train our focus and our efforts on that which, that promise. The, as I, you know, we may, I've made this point before. And, and the, um, and the psalm makes that, and, and several psalms make that point. You know, the, the, the problem that Israel had, they forgot. They took their minds off it. To strive to enter the rest is not to be forgetful, not to, not to, uh, let your mind wander and, and, and focus on, uh, in, uh, have its focus taken off the price, but rather keep it focused on that price. So it's not about doing stuff, you know, in addition to the gospel but rather striving constantly to have the gospel in your ears and your eyes and 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 not allow the gospel to be taken off taken from you or your or to to give up on it or to you know it's like the, if you think of the parable of the sower uh, you know that we heard last sunday you know the that you know the other things come and smother mm. the seed of the word or scorch it, you know, it's too hard, too much hard work. In this, you know, the, the danger here, if you take over the parable of the sower, the, you know, the, these, the, these people are in danger of being, uh, dis, uh, be, uh, of, um, giving up on the word because of persecution, which is, you know, the sea, sea that fell on the, on the rock and that didn't have, when the sun rose and it did not have root in itself and it, and, and it was scorched by the sun and it withered. So don't know. So therefore we need to grow roots. How do we grow roots? By, Hearing and heeding God's word and constantly training before our eyes the promises of the gospel and holding fast to those promises. So it's not an active addition to the work of Christ, but rather a very passive but continual reception of it. The activity consists of, it's like, you know, you know, if you are, you know, if you're on dialysis, you know, strive to stay by the machine. Strive to make sure the needles don't come out. Rather than, you know, you don't have to. The machine will do its work. But if you walk out of the room, you'll find yourself in trouble. To stay by the salvation. So it makes sense. Yeah. So ask your question, Adrian. Yes, so, so make sure you're continually, passively receiving. <laughs> yeah, you know, be, be, you know, don't leave the fountain. Yeah. Don't leave the fountain. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That the disobedience was not believing the word, forgetting the promises. For the word of God, and this is where he, this very famous uh, verse, the word of God, and remember verse 2, which says good news came to just as the message they heard, he actually said the word that they heard. So verse 2 and verse 12 belong together. The word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. So what are we talking about here? The word of God. What is the word of God here? And please don't say Bible. If you're going to say Bible, don't say it. I'll tell you why in a minute. Oh, someone else will read to 
Well, Jesus is Logos, so Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word, and this is why it goes on to, I mean, in the English translation, no creature is hidden from his sight. Sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who to whom we must give an account. It's not a, in other words, it's this word of God is not primarily a thing, but living and active. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the word made flesh. Now the Bible, it doesn't mean the Bible is not the word, but first of all, if you said the Bible to these people, they think the books of the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament yet. But also because it's not just a collection of words in a, in a scroll or in a book, but is God actually speaking to us. The Bible is a record of, a true record of God's speech. But in some senses, the relationship between the, the, the Bible and God's word is like a transcript and an actual speech. I used to teach, um, years and years ago, I used to teach a topic to uh, year nine, which is our 13-year-olds, on prejudice and discrimination. And part of that, we looked at the civil rights movement in America. And I had this exercise, we tried to kind of understand the influence and impact of Martin Luther King, where I would give the class a printout of the I Have a Dream speech, and then pick on a child who is a competent but not a very confident reader and get them to read it to the class. And uh, it took very little time for me to convince them these words don't seem, you know, it's not that impressive a speech. Have a look, you know, I have a dream that one day my four little children will be judged. You know, you know it doesn't, but then you hear it being delivered. You know, then I Then I would play a video where you could actually see and hear Martin Luther King deliver those same words and blow you away Mm. because they came alive. He had the skill. It's like, you know, you know, you've got someone like, you know, Barack Obama used to be saying who's famed for his eloquence. And actually, if you look at what he said, he often didn't say very much, but boy, could, did he know how to say it in a way you thought, you know, you could like, wow, what a speaker. And he could have read your shopping list back to you. And you said, wow, that was impressive. I'm really moved. Mm -hmm. And there's the relationship between the, 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 if like the static record of words and the actual living words of the person who's speaking to you. And the power of God's word is not me only in the record of the words. I'm not trying to undermine the Bible, obviously, but said actually the, the point is not that ultimately we don't stop at the Bible, just those words, but God, you know, through the Bible, God's Holy Spirit speaks. Because the word is actually Jesus. It is the word made flesh. And so this word of God that's living and actually sharper than a two-edged sword is actually Jesus. Jesus speaks, but notice that it's not the, what does the word do? I mean, we think of the word, and if you like, you take the Bible, you read it, so what's happening? What's the process? You know, you open the Bible, you read the Bible, so what happened? You're you learning the word of God. And you're learning. So you're investigating God. But what does this passage say that the word does? It pierces you. It investigates you. 
I remember sitting in a cafe years ago and an elderly Christian man who is a really, really devout man, devout man from a very different theological tradition from ours, but he really knew his Bible. And he once said to me, he said, you know, I'm not sure about the, you know, theology really. Because theology is the study of God's word and God, study of God. But who are we to study God when God is studying us? And, uh, he had a point and this is the same point that's being made here. The word actually invest studies us. And before the word of God, we stand naked. No creature is hidden from his sight. And this takes us again back to Genesis. Because the crown, the, the last thing that we hear before the account of the fall is that they were naked. That the man and his wife were naked and there was, and they felt no shame. But there wasn't shame until the fall, was there? Correct. And there's something, I'm, and again, I'm, I'm currently reading a book on this, um, on the subject, and I've, it's, the last 25 pages the book has been discussing those few words, and I've got another 25 to go before he's finished with what it means for they were naked and felt no shame, and it's, I'm learning a lot, but I think that one of the key points there is that, that the author makes, and I think is absolutely right, is that the man and the woman, they felt no shame because they were, they recognized in each other God's gift to each other. They feel, did not, they did not feel that they were being gazed at to be taken in. They stood in each other's presence, giving themselves to each other. Man shall leave his father and his mother be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That God gave the woman to the man and the man gave himself to the woman. And so there's no shame, nothing hidden, because it was all about giving and no, there's no fear of taking. You know, when you stand naked in front of strangers, you feel ashamed because you feel looked at in a way that you don't want to be looked at. Whereas people who are, you know, there are some people who are, who have no shame. You say, you know, shame is people who don't mind walking around naked on a public beach because they don't feel looked at. They just, you know, you know, I'm, I, essentially they, they, we call them exhibitionists. They exhibit themselves. They give themselves to the public. You know, and that's not a, you know, necessarily good. I'm not necessarily uh, advocating that in the fallen world. But of course, you, you tie that together with the, the teaching that in, in the church, you know, the church is the bride of Christ. And Christ himself was stripped, literally stripped place on the cross. I mean, you don't see it very often. I mean, there's some old, old depictions of kind of early medieval depictions of the crucifixion were historically accurate, where Christ was naked. Then early middle, you know, middle, in the high middle ages, they started putting a loincloth on him. There was, there was no loincloth. You know, Christ made himself entirely naked for the salvation of, of the world. And, the, and so this is a threat or like a warning. There's no hiding place from God's word. Living and active, sharpened through angels. There's no, there's no, there are no crevices where you can stuff secrets away. But at the same time, there's a wonderful promise here because we stand before God as members of the church, naked, and that takes us right back to Genesis, where you know, Ephesians five teaches us that passage really is not about, you know, is about a man and his wife, but actually it's really about Christ and the church. And so it also means that he's giving himself in this search 
and that we are being given to him. And again, I would love to spend an hour or two on this, but we shall, uh, you know, that's, that's essentially, you know, just as a, you know, there's no creatures hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Take it really seriously. But at the same time, if you are his, if you are a member of the church, then this is no longer a terrifying prospect, then this becomes a joyful prospect. This is uh, the, the man, Jesus Christ, and his bride standing naked before each other in a joyful union of husband and wife, of bride and bridegroom. But if you don't belong, then it's a terrible thing. Because if you're not there to be given, then you are there to be examined. Those are the two options. So it's both a, pro- a warning and a promise. It's, it's, it's part of the very rich vein that runs through the scripture, what's often known as bridal theology. That all the language of marriage and that begins in Genesis 2, or reading Genesis 1, maleness, femaleness, is training our eyes on God's salvation and his choice of his beloved ones. Living and active. Not dead and passive. It's not an object primarily to be studied, but a person who examines us. And in when we study God's word ourselves, we are learning about what he is doing. So that we might prepare ourselves. But we know, for example, that, you know, like in Revelation, and again, this is if if you think back to the, some of the comments I made past about in the past about the origins of this letter. Again, there is a really strong connection between this and Ephesians, and also this and Revelation, all of both of which are obviously linked to close linked to the church in Ephesus, as was the Apostle John, whose co-gospel is very infused with this bridal theology from beginning to end. Um, that you know, what does it say at the very end of the Revelation? I saw a new heaven, a new earth, and a, and a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, like a bride adorned for her husband. Ephesians 5, Christ gave himself up for the church in order to present her to himself without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, by the washing of water. So this being prepared before God is not, okay, tidy yourself up, you know, wash your face, comb your hair, but rather let Jesus do what he does. Let him beautify you. You rest, you rest from your works and let Jesus do his work. You know, you stand there and he says, bear that, let me make you beautiful. I think it's incredibly profound and incredibly encouraging and, and a rather joyful picture of salvation. Mm-hmm. which gives us exactly seven minutes for the last three verses. So are you happy to move on to the last three verses? Is there anything else that anybody would like to ask? I mean, there's so, so much more that we could say. Go on, Rhea. Just a good question. Uh, uh, division of soul and spirit. 
what what is it is this about this i mean we are we are unity there are body soul and mind and you know so um we're talking here yeah i think it's it's i i would argue that it's an expression it's a sort of it's like this sharp a sharp implement that gets you know kind of prizes us apart entirely there isn't you know that we we you know it it so dismantles us completely um it's not i don't think it's a literal sense but like you know it gets into the you know joint and marrow um disorder thoughts and intention of the heart so you know, it it gets everywhere so it, i i would say that it's a it's a metaphorical way of speaking as opposed to a description of the constitution of a person is that, are you happy with that? Yeah. So let's read the last, uh, last three verses then. Um, somebody like to read for us 14, 15 and 16. I'll do it. Thank you. Since then we have great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with these weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempered, so we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay. So this is then the kind of the, the uh, next conclusion. Since then. And so it doesn't, because it doesn't flow directly from the previous passage, but it reaches back further to what we have already learned about Jesus uh, before we got to Psalm 95. So this sort of concludes uh, the meditation uh, on Psalm 95. <clears throat> um and acts as a bridge to the next section, which begins, turns to the next psalm, Psalm 110, which we get to in Psalm 5, in chapter 5. But we have already before had had this uh, reference uh, in verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And now he has spent two chapters, as we have them, discussing the nature of that temptation, the dangers of that temptation, and what, how to uh, be fortified against that temptation. And then he concludes by returning to that. So he's been talking about Jesus. Really, this has been, in a sense, has been like a preface to the thing that he's really getting into, which is Jesus, the high priest, which which forms the heart, the central heart of this of the letter. Since then, we have a high priest, as I said to you about eight minutes ago in this sermon. <laughs> uh, he says, "Who has passed through the heavens?" Now, again, think of think of a high priest entering the holy of holies. You know, he he leaves his house or his home or wherever he is saying, and he enters the court of Israel, and then he walks through the high, the holy air place, and he doesn't stop walking until he gets to the holy of holies. And we'll get to the whole day of atonement and you know in later in later chapters. But he passes through the whole sanctuary 
until he gets to the Holy of Holies. And he says, Jesus, our high priest, has passed through the heavens. And because we are short of time, I will just get, uh, I won't ask you what you think that means. I'll just tell you what he's referring to. He's referring to the ascension. Ascension of Christ. He has passed through, passed through the heavens. If you like, if you think in kind of geographical, like spatial terms, that he's passed through the atmosphere. He's passed through the, the solar system. He's gone all the way, all the heavens, because heaven, heaven and sky is the same word. English again makes it kind of unusually of most languages, makes a distinction between heaven and sky. Um, these days, but it's the same word. So he's passed through the heavens and the skies. And this is probably also a reference to kind of uh, common Jewish spiritual kind of speculative writings of the time, which uh, we had, there were all sorts of kind of theories about different, different uh, layers of heaven. And Paul talks in first, second Corinthians, we heard on last Sunday, you know, to, you know, a man who entered, you know, uh, entered the third heavens. By third, not second and fourth, but third. <laughs> you know, that's like, there's this sort of idea that there's a kind of layers of heavens which correspond to the sanctuary. And that the heart of, you know, God's throne is at the heart of it all. And then there are these sort of layers, you know, closer, nearer and closer and further zones. And Jesus passed through the heavens like a high priest. In other words, he has entered. We have a high priest who has entered the holy, holy of holies. So this is kind of putting us in mind of the Day of Atonement. Since we have such a high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Let's hold on to. It kind of the, the word means to grasp on, to kind of cling on to, take hold of. It's the sort of thing, I mean, it's the sort of thing that if you're about to fall, you know, you fall, you're about to fall out of a tree and you just grab on. You take, you grab the nearest thing and don't let go. Let us hold fast our confession. And confession means, what's, what does the word confess mean? If you confess something? You say the same as. You say the same as. So what God has said, we now say. We, you know, we, in other words, that we, having heard the word of God, let us just hold on to that word that has been said to us and make that our word. Mm-hmm. What God has promised, we now hold us again. This is, this is true. So the, you know, we, in verse, verse 12, we had the word of God doing all the searching and what the word of God searching us discovered or stated, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased, whatever. We now hold on to that. Can we keep saying that? Yeah. You, you know, I am his son or, you know, you are the bride of Christ. I am the bride of Christ for, and this is, because this is not a futile thing. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. You know, what does, you know, what can you know? Uh, you know what, what would Jesus know what it's like to be, you know, me and have these things? Nope. Who, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Think back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Essentially saying, you don't want to take the hard road. Here's a shortcut. Don't be hungry. Eat these stones. Turn them into bread. You know, why, why don't we just cut short? You know, don't, don't, don't bother with the way of the cross. Why don't you, why don't we just, why don't you just buy down worship and I'll give you the world? You know, don't, don't go through the hard work off. It's exactly the same temptation. And in fact, it's a greater temptation because Jesus alone had to endure the shame of the cross for the whole world. You don't have to do that. He's done that already. So whatever you suffer will be less. 
The only dif- difference between Jesus' temptation and my temptation is that he didn't sin. And so Jesus' presence in the temple of God is not like somebody who's so unlike us going somewhere far away, but rather somebody who knows exactly what we are and he has gone ahead. And is, as we will go on to learn, he is interceding for us. He's fighting the fight for us. So this, again, I mean, I, it, it's, it's an absolutely masterful, masterful construction as, as a sermon. He takes that conclusion and he draws together something that he began with and uses this as the kind of hinge on which now the whole letter now turns and goes down a new, even richer avenue where he begins to draw on the whole of that, or the heart of the Old Testament, you know, Old Testament, the Old Covenant and his worship and draws it all into Christ. A rather splendid theologian. And so, let us then with confidence, he says, confidence, um, means confidence in his boldness. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he doesn't say, you know, you know, pull your socks up, try harder, you know, hold your breath, squeeze your buttocks and you can do this. No, he says, no, draw near with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, not of judgment, throne of grace. Because what's in the temple, what's in the Holy of Holies, it's the mercy seat. And Romans 3 says, Christ is, I mean, it's usually translated, you know, he is our propitiation, but that word actually means mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. We draw in with confidence, like he says in, in the small catechism, with this word near the uh, beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Here God invites us, you know, that he invites us like a father, to pray to him like father, like children to the father, so with all boldness and confidence, or with full conviction, that we may receive mercy. Mercy here doesn't mean forgiveness of sins, but that, that God has mercy on our weakness and our need and fulfills and, and supplies our need. And find grace in time of need. It's very easy to, uh, oh, well, uh, very often I at least find myself thinking that, of course, Jesus endured the temptation because he, he's God. But uh, if if you look at, uh, you know, um, this verse now, so, I mean, he was 100% man, human. Mm. So he must have suffered the same way the temptation, like, you know, when we are tempted that, you know, it's it's not so easy just to push it away. If, if, if we go by this verse... Yes, and if you, I mean, if you look at like, um, Jesus in Gethsemane, according to Luke, mm. you know, sweating blood, mm. you know, this yeah. was, you could say, you know, you could just say, you know, that it's, it's something about, and, and it's particularly striking this in Luke's gospel, because, I mean, there, there have been quite a few studies into how Luke portrays Jesus' death, and one of my teachers, um, from, from years ago did his whole doctorate on Jesus, how Luke portrays Jesus' death, to a kind of Greco-Roman audience as a kind of real, uh, like a noble death. He died like a noble person does, not like a coward or a, or a, or a kind of uh, a small soul, a small mighty person. And yet in the midst of this noble death, we've got Jesus sweating blood. 
You know, that he wasn't, he was, this was not easy. And it's a mystery that we cannot comprehend. I, I, I had to, I was, I, I was, you know, as a seminary, I had to write kind of essays on was Jesus really tempted or was he not? And, you know, if he answered one way, I said, yeah, but he was truly a man. If he answered the other way, yeah, but he was truly God. And it was almost like a kind of trick question. Bit of a waste of time, you know, if you are <laughs> in retrospect with all due respect to my wonderful teachers. Uh, you know, we, we, we have to just take it, you know, if he was truly man, he suffered like us in every respect, except being God, he, he never sinned. It's true, his temptations didn't come from his heart, but from, from outside. Yes. Whereas with us, you know. Yeah, we, we, we have the added problem is that, yeah, that a lot of the temptation comes from our sinful nature. He had no such, but he was genuinely tempted because, you know, he was, he, he had, he gave up, he gave up everything and suffered greatly for our sakes. And at every turn, there was an option to turn the other way, to go some other way. So that takes us uh, slightly past our time, uh, but very neatly to the end of chapter four. Uh, and I would like you to hold that end in your mind for the next week, because the next verse starts with four. So we'll continue into the next, you know, the, it flows seamlessly into into the next section, which then runs really for uh, several uh, chapters and forms, you know, to the really to the end of chapter uh, 10, um, which is, is the kind of the heart of this letter and really in many ways the heart of our very faith. So I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Any final comments, questions, thoughts? Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you sent Jesus, our Savior, to suffer alongside us, to suffer temptation, so that we might be rescued from temptation. We thank you that he is the word made flesh, who comes to us to examine us, not in order to condemn, but that in him the world might be saved and that we might be saved. We thank you for the rest from all striving that we already have in him, and we pray that you would Teach us to strive to enter that rest again and again. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would repent of those sins that still cling to us and that hinder us from following Jesus. And that you would strengthen our faith in him and lead us into renewed and strengthened obedience to your promises and to your commands. Until that day when all hindrances And all obstacles are removed and we enter into the eternal rest that he has prepared for those who love him. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.